What a week we are having. We've got the biggest scandal at the Ohio State House that we've ever seen. We've got a mask mandate statewide, and the feds are coming. Donald Trump's feds, and who knows what that means. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon and Chris Warnowski. It's been a long, newsy week, guys, but it's coming to a close. Yes, oh. finally. <laughs> you say that now, but you've probably jinxed us for the rest of Friday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and stuff will happen over the weekend, too. Well, we don't have anybody working. I don't know how we're going to do that. <laughs> All right, let's get, let's get this show on the road. What happened in 24 hours that persuaded Ohio Governor Mike DeWine to reverse his position on the corrupt billion-dollar-plus bailout of the state's nuclear plants and call for the legislature to repeal it. We talked yesterday about our amazement that Mike DeWine was standing behind this thing that was forged in the stench of corruption with First Energy providing $60 million in bribes, according to federal prosecutors. And 24 hours later, he got up in front of his coronavirus briefing and said, yes, this has to be repealed. So Jane Cahoon, he did the right thing. But I'm trying to understand what happened in 24 hours that caused him to change his mind. I hope it had something to do with what we said on this podcast yesterday. <laughs> well, it could. I mean, I, I'm with you. I still just find it puzzling that he didn't just do this the day before because it was the right thing to do. But I guess the way he explains it anyway, what happened is that he thought about it some more. He he explained that he was struggling to process the whole scandal and it really just had to sink in. And and so then he said, I mean, he used some pretty strong words, including like words that we've used before on this podcast, like that it stinks, it's terrible, it's not acceptable, it's disgusting, and that the whole you know process was tainted. And while he still agrees with the policy. He's now saying that he thinks they need to repeal it and replace it through a transparent process. And, and you know, you know, I, I do think that the governor is an ethical guy, which, you know, that's saying something because often elected officials are anything but which is why what he did originally was such a shock when he stood by it. I mean, I, I my jaw was in my lap when he did that. So I'd like to think that what you just said is true. But I also think there's a chance that he's pragmatist, that after in those 24 hours, he realized there would be a crescendo of screams by people to throw this stinky thing into the trash, that there were legislators already moving that way. And ultimately, he and Lieutenant Governor John Houston, who did the same thing, would have to change their position. And if you know that eventually you're going to have to change your position, the smart thing to do is change it right away and avoid the bleeding. So I'm I'm torn on, did he do this because it's the right thing to do, which you kind of hope, or did he do it because even though he disagrees with it, he knew it was inevitable? What also puzzles me is, I mean, weren't his advisors telling him right away? I mean, couldn't they process this right away? The The, you know, enormity of this whole thing and tell him this is what you should do, Governor? I don't know. I think maybe he was failed. But I also think they're worried about a repeal because, look, there were a million facets to this bill that were all bad for Ohio, that it wiped out green energy. It 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 
the the amount of money that First Energy got is very questionable. We had Jeremy Pelzer back when this was being passed do a story that raised the question, does First Energy actually need all this money? And the answer was, it's really hard to tell because there's so many conflicting sources on it. So if you repeal this and First Energy's lobbyists can't be in there peppering people with cash, which they can't now, the truth will come out. And maybe they didn't need $1.3 billion in this bill. Maybe you needed $300 million. Let's face it, no sooner did First Energy get this this bailout where they gave investors $300 million. So how broke were they? I, I wonder whether the hesitance here is, holy, holy moly, all of these energy friends that fill our campaign coffers are going to have to fight now against these green energy standards that most Ohioans want. And I, I, I just I have a sense that that's what's going on here. Now we can have a real argument about every element of this bill without First Energy's stinky money polluting the conversation. Well, let me push back just a little bit on that, because can they ever really remove the taint and do this over again? I mean, they're still going to be voting to give money to First Energy. That doesn't erase this uh, scheme that press, that uh, federal authorities say occurred, uh, even if they're not out there giving new money. I mean, they've already... Let me, let, me, let me be radical here. Maybe in the discussion, there, there are legislators with a conscience that say, you know, we do believe that we should have nuclear power, but, but we don't trust First Energy. So we think we should foster a sale of these plants to a utility we trust, and then we'll prop it up. I mean, I, the, the thing is, we never had an honest conversation about this. If you recall... There were a bunch of groups. Some of them were natural gas because they, they saw this as competition. You know, you're subsidizing nuclear energy at the expense of natural gas, which is carbon fuel. But there were a bunch of clean energy groups that were screaming about this every step of the way. And, and you know, now know for sure that it was an uneven playing field. If you have the honest conversation and everybody gets to have their say, and let's face it, the spotlight will be on everybody on this. Do you get to a much more honest and better place for the citizens of Ohio that that doesn't reward First Energy for its sleazy operations? Okay, radical Chris, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll go with that, like as you would call it, you know, unicorn scenario. <laughs> can, I, can I can I say something? This yes, is Chris Warnowski. This is Chris Warnowski. Part of me thinks that they did not want to have this kind of open wound going into a general election. I mean, think about, you know, think about how this happened. This happened in during an off year um, as far as major political elections go. And now all of a sudden you have this thing that is now open and, and, and going to have to be redebated and, and, you know, essentially, you know, relitigated in the court of public opinion at a time when more people in Ohio are going to be paying attention to state, federal and local politics. So, you know, it's, 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 it's going to be very interesting to see what happens because, you know, we're less than a hundred days away from this election now. And, and we are, you know, and, and we're now a state that's in play. So, you know, this is, you know, this is something that has, it was really kind of served up to Ohio Democrats. And it'll be interesting to see 
how they pick this up and run with it as the election years. But I, I think, and, and I guess I, and I really think, I mean, it's really kind of reset the entire game here for November because it, you know, it, it, it does give them an opening in a state that is suddenly vulnerable for Republicans. Which is what I was, that, that's what I was getting at with did Mike DeWine's 24 hours of standing by it because of all that they don't want to relitigate it in public opinion because the only thing that can happen is to reduce the amount and to change the unreasonable green energy things that were done in this bill if democrats aren't making political ads as we speak then then they don't deserve office in ohio but (laughs) you know it's it's i mean i'm i'm curious to see what impact this has on the election Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Cleveland going to become the next Portland, with federal agents secretly snatching people off the street without probable cause? This is frightening stuff, Chris Warnowski. I have lived a long time, and our federal government has never operated this way, but Donald Trump has sent his Homeland Security squads into Portland, almost like a goon squad in unmarked vans. They're grabbing people without probable cause. And there's evidence this is spreading across the country. And now the president is talking about Cleveland. What are the feds saying the purpose of agents coming here is? And what are we afraid of? Okay, so it's interesting what how much this has developed since we have written the original story, and and really I have to put it in the context of what's happening nationally. But I'll I'll start with what they say is going to happen here. Um, the federal government oftentimes partners with local police to sometimes fill gaps in investigations and stuff. So a lot of times there are these interagency task forces. And that the federal agencies and local police participate in. So sometimes police will take part in investigations with the FBI, the DEA, uh, ATF, and and the U.S. Marshals. Um, and there's a lot of back and forth. Earlier this year, or I think it might have been late last year, they they did something kind of similar here, where they 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 announced that they were going to bring in a bunch of people from the federal government and the federal law enforcement agencies to help out. Um, and with the coronavirus, there's also now more gaps that they say they need to fill. So they're doing this thing called Operation Legend, which they say is designed to support, quote, high crime communities. And and they're, they're sending agents from all these other agencies back to Cleveland. And, so, and so, they, so, so let me stop. If mm-hmm. that's what it is, that's a good thing, right? You could always use, we have a lot of gun violence in Cleveland. You could always use some extra people to help reduce that. Mike DeWine talked about this yesterday about how the, he appreciates that kind of thing that, that as attorney general, he often worked hand in hand with city police to address bigger problems. So on the surface, right. what they're saying is a good thing. What the, are we city, the city has always, you know, welcomed this kind of participation from the feds. And but what are we afraid of? We're afraid of what's happening in Portland, which is a little different. Uh, what's happening there is the Department of Homeland Security has this kind of secret police force that is made up of Border Patrol agents, which are n- not properly trained to deal with demonstrations. Portland has seen demonstrations almost every night since really the George Floyd demonstrations started happening. And really, the, the Trump administration has sort of used the city of Portland as a test city 
to sort of crack down on these people under the guise that they're protecting federal landmarks, like federal court buildings and stuff like that. And what has come out of this has been some very, very disturbing stuff. I mean, you had a a, a court rule with a temporary restraining order uh, on behalf of like journalists and, and uh, saying that they, you know, journalists were getting hurt and, and yeah, it's a restraining and order they, they ordering the federal government to stop shooting yeah. reporters and the legal watchers of the protests, which is unbelievable because it means and, and, they were being shot. And they're plucking people off the street. It's seemingly at random. I, I doubt it's at random, but they're pulling people off the street into unmarked vans. Um, officers aren't identifying themselves. They're detaining people. I mean, this is this is about as as tyrannical as it gets. Um, and, 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 so, and I'm still getting emails from people that are defending Donald Trump to the hilt and saying he's a great president. It's like he's attacking his own citizenry. He's turned Homeland Security into an occupying force that is attacking innocent people. How do you defend that? Right. And so what what is what is I think concerning some of these communities. So what happened was and, and this we learned about this in a very weird way. So they announced that this Operation Legend was going to expand into Albuquerque and Chicago, which the I guess the administration. I, I mean, Trump has used Chicago as a as an example of how violence is out of control in in cities. And so there there was a newsletter that the the White House sends out, and it mentioned Cleveland in it. So we started poking around, and we found out through some sources. They, you know, they kind of made the announcement a little early. And, you know, so we found out that, yes, this was going to happen. And so while the feds here and the and the police here are hopeful that this is just an ex- expansion of what has already been happening here with this state federal partnership in the context of what's happening in Portland and maybe Seattle now, as, as things have changed overnight and the administration might be sending, right. We're seeing it in a bunch of places. There's concern that in these mostly democratic cities, that, that this is being done as a way to intimidate democratic mayors, governors of States that are democratic. So this thing that's going to happen in Cleveland is happening in the context of something much, much bigger and a little more sinister. All right. So, so the mayor is going to talk about this today, and I guess I'm going to have to buy some protective gear for our reporters because if the Fed starts shooting at them, we got to protect them. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is a top aide to Ohio Governor Mike DeWine linked to First Energy's $60 million bribery scheme that now has Ohioans giving $1.3 billion to the utility and some other things? for its nearly obsolete nuclear plants. Jane Cahoon, Andrew Tobias, and the Cincinnati Inquirer both got this story yesterday. It's a it's a bit of a blockbuster. It doesn't say Mike DeWine is corrupt, but it makes it a lot harder for him to say he had no idea what was going on. Correct. So the, the criminal complaint that was unsealed Tuesday lays out in great detail how First Energy poured millions into this dark money organization called Generation Now that Larry Householder controlled. But in addition, there was mentioned in the complaint another 501c4, and they identified this company as, they just called it the Energy Pass-Through Company. And that was initially funded with $5 million bucks from First Energy. So the, this Energy Pass-Through Company matches the description of 
Partners for Progress. And Dan McCarthy was listed as a principal of that organization when it was founded in 2017. So Dan McCarthy was a prominent Columbus lobbyist at a a really influential firm called the Success Group, which pushed for this nuclear bailout for First Energy. But he left that lobbying job to become Governor Mike DeWine's chief legislative guy uh, when, when DeWine took office in 2019. But there's a key timing element that Andrew zeroed in on, that that McCarthy was involved in the push to get the nuclear bailout for First Energy. So he knew how much First Energy was spending while he was there to do this. So when when all the sleazy things happened after Householder got in, and First Energy was sitting mute, refusing to acknowledge they were the money behind all those ridiculous China ads. McCarthy should have known, right? Well, you know, one would think. Now, um, the, m- both McCarthy and DeWine say McCarthy did nothing wrong, and he's not accused of anything in the complaint. In fact, um, the U.S. attorney, David DeVillers, said no one in DeWine's administration has been implicated in this investigation. McCarthy said he was shocked by it and he's not been contacted by any federal authorities and and wasn't aware of anything illegal or unethical. But, you know, his involvement with this group, as you said, it does show that a top staff member for DeWine was was aware of First Energy's role in in, you know, funding Larry Householder's run for speaker and the whole HB6 campaign. This group, you know, after they got the initial five million, they they sent one point two million of that money to these organizations working to elect householder as speaker, you know, including Generation Now, that that group that I that I mentioned. But, and, but, but we're getting wrapped up in in the law, right? I mean, it's okay. So they didn't they didn't break the law, they didn't do anything wrong. But as we've said, every step of this process stunk to the high heavens, right? So so forget the law. It was wrong. It, it, everything about this bill, except, you know, DeWine will argue the nuclear policy was wrong. It, it, we all were stunned by how it developed. And McCarthy knew who was behind it. And so you would you would like to think that he would have pulled the governor aside and said, hey, you know, I know you believe in the nuclear policy, but you got to understand what's going on behind the scenes here is First Energy spending a lot of money to get this done. We ought to take a close look. Is every part of this the right thing? Should we should we try and be more transparent? Should we insist that First Energy step up and be clear about what it's spending before we give them a billion dollars? And it didn't happen. They they rammed this thing through. Householder got his job. He rammed this thing through. And DeWine was so excited about signing it, he flew legislators back on his own plane so that they could vote for it, even though it was stinky. That, that's the point. And I think that's what the meaning of that story is. Right. And I, I mean, it, it just seems like there was this, you know, there, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but they're they're just so used to money playing a role in politics here that they they've become immune to, you know, any <laughs> outrage over it, I guess. No, that's I really that's a really cynical. And it's sad <laughs> if it's true. That is well, cynical. All right. 
You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why didn't the FBI, upon learning that Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder was masterminding a first energy bribery scheme to bail out the state's nuclear plants, did not stop him before it could happen? Chris Warnowski, this is a fascinating story because the, the information that came out Tuesday showed the FBI did know this was going on before it happened and didn't stop it. And we went and looked at it, and the conclusion by most people familiar with this kind of thing is the FBI did the right thing because that's their job. Yeah, this is a, I mean, this is a weird philosophical kind of legal story that that John Coniglia put together and talked to a lot of people about this. The affidavit that was attached to the complaint against Householder and the quote unquote Householder Enterprise um, suggests that the FBI was onto this as early as as 2018. So, you know, the, the question that comes up sometimes in these criminal investigations is, well, you know, wrongdoing takes place in in criminal investigations. You know, sometimes, you know, federal agents are involved in drug buys and things like that, but they don't arrest people on the spot because what they're doing is really part of a much broader investigation. And so in this case, um, a lot of the people that John talked to said, you know, hindsight's 2020 and and you know, you can you can sit here today and say, oh, they should have intervened in this. But, you know, when you, the minute that you start to sort of direct things in, in the middle of an investigation, the people are saying, you know, you essentially blow the whistle on yourself, that, that you're, you're announcing yourself as, as known and that this, this investigation is taking place. And, and what you might do in the process of intervening in something to stop something bad like this this legislation from happening, you kind of out yourself. And well, and, and, and you, I mean, they did differentiate if, if lives had been at stake, if there had been a public safety danger, then they do need to step up. But their job is to arrest criminal wrongdoers and not stop bad public policy. And if they step up to stop the bad public policy, they don't catch the bad guys. And I and I and everybody he talked to seemed to say that if 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 this had been a murder plot, they would have saved the person who was going to be killed. But because this is just the integrity of the entire state government of Ohio, it was okay to let it go. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Um, so, but right. it makes some sense, right? I mean, it, after reading it, you kind of say, okay, FBI did the right thing. Well, and he even, I mean, he spoke to people who were are ardent uh, opponents of this who. Who said, "Yeah, it would have been nice if this hadn't happened," but but you know we understand that that in the course of the investigation you kind of have to do what you have to do, and you know I mean if look if they had if they had intervened who who knows how different this criminal complaint would look and and what names might not be in it and 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 just sort of how how it would have sort of changed the 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 narrative of of this story you know I. I get it. Like you don't want to, I mean, as journalists, we're told we're not allowed to intervene in, in real life. You know, when you talk to photojournalists about what they do, you know, and, and people, people ask that question all the time. It's like, well, why didn't you get in there and help? And you go, well, it's not, that's not what we're there for. So, although, although, although if we saw somebody who was in danger of right. getting killed, we would help them. I don't want people to think. Right, right. I mean, but you know, so there, I mean, there are great examples of, of yeah. photojournalism where, 
that sort of ethical question does arise. And, and, and I think in this instance, they, the, the federal investigators believe that there was, there was no, there was more to gain by not intervening than, than there was by doing so. So it's a good piece. You can find it on cleveland.com. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why do Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and Lieutenant Governor John Houston keep talking about the corrupt nuclear bailout is good policy because nuclear power is not carbon based when the bailout bill actually erased the rules that would have required Ohio to have much more green energy? Didn't the bill DeWine signed do a lot of harm to the green energy movement while they're now saying, hey, we need nuclear because it's non-carbon? Jen Cahoon, this is kind of a big deal. Uh, the Ohio had been moving toward green energy. First energy by spending this 60 million pretty much squashed it. And I just find there's a little bit of hypocrisy now coming, especially from John Houston saying, hey, 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 we got to prop up nuclear energy because it's the only non-carbon we have. Yeah, no kidding, because the Republicans <laughs> killed green energy. Well, don't forget, they did throw a little bone to some solar projects, about half a dozen solar projects around the state in House Bill 6. But, you know, that was pretty much it. Otherwise, they did gut those renewable energy standards and, and energy efficiency standards that that were that had been lost since, like, I don't know, 2008 or something like that. You know, they they had required utilities to obtain a certain percent of their power from renewable sources and and uh, they had tacked on these charges you know these energy for energy efficiency programs and um, that effectively got wiped away in this bill but but Mike DeWine signed in a Mm -hmm. hurry so so to say I'm a big believer in nuclear energy because it's non-carbon well he signed the bill that wiped out non-carbon energy I think you can throw the hypocrisy flag here. Does anybody disagree? Don't disagree no. with you, number one. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that strikes me about this is they're talking somehow like nuclear energy is clean energy. Does that strike anybody as unusual? <laughs> I mean, I'm old, so I was around for the no nukes and, you know, the, yeah. the China Syndrome movie and when Three Mile nuclear Island. Nuclear waste, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I don't really look at nuclear energy as this environmental great thing, but that's the way it's being portrayed in these briefings. Well, you know, it's it's clean in the sense that it doesn't pump carbon into the atmosphere, um, but then you have to bury something very, very deep into the ground for uh, eons. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, tra- it's a trade-off. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, uh, I should, um, I should note here that the, the governor was asked during his briefing yesterday, whether, you know, this repeal and replace process that he's proposing for this bill, uh, would include, you know, them revisiting, you know, these green energy standards and he didn't commit to anything, but he did say, Oh, he thinks everything should be on the table. Yeah, no, he very carefully did not commit to anything. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Today is the first day of Indian season. What does Indians owner Paul Dolan say are his next steps in considering a name change for the baseball team? This is kind of a big deal following in what happened with the Washington Redskins, which are going to have a really strange name this year. I think it's the Washington football team while they search for a new name. Uh, Chris, what is Dolan saying he's going to do to come up with a new name possibly? 
So if, if people don't know, and, and the people who care about this already know about this, but, but he said on uh, Thursday that the club has committed to an ongoing dialogue with Native American leaders and Cleveland local officials and fans and staff regarding a plan moving forward with the team's name. He, he issued a statement that indicated in the, in the coming weeks, he's going to sort of engage um, with, especially with Native American leaders to sort of better understand their perspectives on, on what to do with the Indian's name. You know, I don't think the Indian's name is long for this world, to be honest. And so I think the Redskins thing was kind of a sea change for, for stuff like this. So then, and you saw them take a drastic step this week. And, and it was interesting because people had already stopped referring to the Washington Redskins name in print and media. Like some organizations have already taken a, a stance saying like, we're not going to refer to it. And we're already referring to it as the Washington football team. You know, this, this dialogue, you know, I, I, I think is, is, is key to sort of what they decide to do in the future, but it doesn't look like they're going to be making this decision this year. Maybe. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it for another another week of very uh, intriguing podcasts. You know, but I feel like there's so much more to talk about with this householder first energy bribery scheme that we should do another special episode. So come back Saturday for a discussion about the unanswered questions that remain with that stinky deal. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. Like I said, we'll be back on Saturday with a special episode and Monday with a regular episode.